Hey, it's Elise, and this is How to Disappoint Your Mom, a practical look at the turning points where we disappoint others to make ourselves proud. So far, it's been equal parts praying, blushing, and cussing. I'm taking Seth Godin and Alex De Palma's podcasting workshop, and I was on a Zoom call sharing the title of my podcast, How to Disappoint Your Mom, and suddenly I hear, oh my God, I have disappointed my mom so many times. And that is how I met my first guest, Trisha Rose Burt, who in the span of two weeks quit a lucrative job, divorced her husband, sold her car, cashed out her retirement savings, and moved to Ireland. But I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves. Trisha Rose Burt is a multimedia artist, story consultant, and creative coach. Her stories are frequently broadcast on the Moth Radio Hour and podcast. Her one-woman show, How to Draw a Naked Man, was selected for the New York International Fringe Festival and NYC's United Solo Theater Festival. And I just want to add one note on that. I listened to the full version on Apple Music, and I listened to the shortened version on YouTube, and you must take a listen. I promise it'll be the best 13 minutes of your week like it was mine. You can find Trisha at trisharosebert.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A, at Trisha Rosebert on Instagram, and in her upcoming podcast, No Time to be Timid. In my opinion, the very best description of Trisha came after she disclosed that she was working as a nude model, and her lifelong friend replied, Trisha, I feel like I'm a more interesting person because I know you. That is exactly how I feel listening to this episode, and I know you will too. I want to start by saying that I really did not expect to feel what I felt listening to your one woman show, you know, and 20 minutes in, I'm just like furiously jotting down the names of people to text it to. I think part of the magic was the feeling of, uh, you know, the fear of being rejected by your community. Um, the, the fear of, you know, like feeling miserable where you are loving the familiarity and, and not being willing to like jump into that next step. All of those things. I mean, really, I don't know. It was just like a very magical experience listening to the show. I feel truly like the podcast gods have smiled on me to get to chat with you. So (laughs) I'm, I'm really happy to have you here. I'm tickled to be here. I'm tickled Mm. to be here. You know, and it was really interesting just writing that show in the first place because, okay, so I had been in business, as we know, for a very long time. And then I snapped and started going to art school. And that's when everything sort of, you know, came into focus of like, you're in the wrong life. Why why are you in this life? And, um, and went over to Ireland and came back. Anyway, so I was a visual artist for about 10 years. And then the market crashed or whatever we say it did in 2008 and no one was buying visual work and no one was hiring consultants. And I was like, well, I'll just go into performance because that's so lucrative. I mean, like you know, <laughs> that'll be a real moneymaker. Let's do that. But it had been, that show had been on my heart for about 13 years. Were there like five options on the table and you were thinking about all of them and decided to do the one woman show or what was the transition like from one to the other? Well, 
<laughs> nothing I've done ever makes sense on paper. Like, um, you know, when I uprooted myself and moved to Ireland um, and left this corporate gig, which was very lucrative, um, it made no sense on paper financially at all. It saved my soul. It probably saved my life, but it, you know, and um, so when I went into performance, <laughs> um, you know, sure there were options because I could have gotten a real job, I guess. Um, but I, I, you know, one thing is I do live in the woods in New Hampshire. So there's not a lot of, I live in a very small community, um, and so there's not a lot of, it's not like I'm living in a city where it's like, oh, I can get all kinds of jobs here, you know? And so uh, the job market is very small, certainly with my skill sets. Um, and, um, I mean, for the longest time I was the typist at the local paper. Now, <laughs> just to, just to, you know, say I used to be a consultant at Harvard Business School Publishing and I worked at Fidelity Investments. And so when I went in to get this job at the local paper. <laughs> they, were they were probably kind of doing like, a, a double take on that resume. They were like, you realize you're like way overqualified for this job, right? <laughs> and like, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, I needed it that I needed a source of income to help me while I was doing my visual work and preparing for this one woman show, visual show that was down in Boston. And I wanted a job that had that didn't have a lot of decisions involved in it, right? So typing, you know, the bowling scores and the obituaries and the school lunches and those kinds of things was sort of, and also the most amazing amount of material if you're a performance artist. Tantalizing. Anyway, oh my gosh, it was just incredible. But so, but, you know, that wouldn't work this time around. You know, I, I needed, you know, a real sort of source of income. And, and it was tricky. It was really hard to find anything. And um, so while I was looking, I just started writing the show. So, so I want to put a pin to come back to the financial transition. But before we go too far, I, I'm curious about the conversation when you first told your mom or your dad, um, I'm leaving my job, you know, consulting with Fidelity Investments and Harvard Business School. And I'm going to go, and I know it was a bit of a process, but like when you broke that news to either of them, what was the actual conversation? Like, did you call them on the phone? You wrote a letter. How did that oh, When go? I was down, okay. When I first, cause the big, the big thing was moving over to Ireland. That's what kicked this whole thing. I guess the big thing was when I decided to go to art school and my, you know, my mother's immediate reaction was, why would you make art when you could make all that money? <laughs> 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 and I was like, I'm miserable. I'm so miserable. And, you know, not, to, you know, and I said, I really feel like this is God is this God is calling me to do this. She's like, well, how do you know it's God? And I was like, well, I just, I'm just, <laughs> and how did you faith. answer that? I went, I just kind of feel like it is. I feel like this is where I'm being called to go, you know, and it was, it was marching orders. I couldn't um, ignore, you know, it was real marching orders. I couldn't ignore. And, um, and so when I decided to move to Ireland, my mother was actually very excited for me. 
um, because she was raised in a very small town in Tennessee and she wished, and she loved to travel. And she's like, Trisha, I would have loved to have lived in a different country. So she was delighted. My father was actually very supportive from the beginning when I went to art hmm. school, ended up giving me a book on women artists, you know, and I was like, who knew? And, um, you know, cause I had, you know, been in business cause my father was in business and I was supposed to be in business, you know, and, and suddenly, you know, he was very supportive about everything. And um, he wasn't thrilled about me moving to Ireland because missing me. He didn't want me to live. He, he said to me, Trisha, I don't want you to live in Ireland for the rest of my life. And as it turned out, he did die while I was over in Ireland. I was like, well, oh, there wow. You go. <laughs> so, which was kind of a drag. But anyway, but he was very supportive of me um, taking risk. He was very supportive of me taking risk. And um my parents were split up. They had, a, you know, just a fantastically disastrous divorce when I was, you know, 15, which gave me all kinds of material uh, for the show. But, um, you know, so, and they actually had two, my brother and my sister were doing everything right in air quotes, right? So, so I was the last one. And, and, you know, I, I think if I had, so they already had two doing things very traditionally with, you know, marriages and children and everything. And I think it would have been harder had I been the only child or the first child and, you know, going rogue. But um, I loved what your dad said to you in the car that one time. Do you mind sharing that about you oh, and your yeah. sister? Yeah. Um, oh man, I can, even as I'm telling you this, I, I'm, um, I, I am in the car with my father, you know, I mean, every visual in there. And, um, and I was, I was in, I think I'm in college when he says this to me, either college or right out of it. And we'd just gone to lunch, you know, at the country club. And um, my father says, Trisha Rose, your sister is going to have a very nice life with a husband and children but you, you're different. <laughs> and, you know, and I say oh. that, and I know. And I didn't, again, I say this in the show, I didn't have the wherewithal to ask him if different was a good or a bad thing. And I just assumed it was bad because everyone around me looked exactly the same. And so I was just desperate not to be that different person you know, for a long time. And then it was like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is a lost cause. But, but basically, because my life blew up. I mean, I had tried so to do it the way I was supposed to do it. Um, and then when I was 33, just everything blew up. I mean, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for, you know, my ex-husband. And I'm so grateful for, you know, everything that went wrong because it had me be in the, in the right life now. To hear you talk about, it, I can identify with the part of like, it sounds like you're someone who really, you really, for the least, you know, first three decades of your life craved fitting in. Oh, and God, absolutely. How did you navigate that feeling of wanting to so desperately to fit in and then picking life as an artist, which I, I mean, to me, art is really about making connections that haven't been made before. So you kind of have to stand out. It's part of the inherent aspect well, of being an artist well I mean it's it's kind of fun you know how you just I don't know I don't want to speak for you I will tell you what I did I never felt like I was in the groove with everything I always felt like I was just a couple beats off and I could I could look like I fit in and I could play the game 
Um, but I just was always just so not comfortable in my skin. Um, I just wasn't comfortable in my skin. And it sort of reached its head when I was at work and in, in a corporate job going, I am just miserable. And I, I really thought it was just my job that was making me miserable. I didn't realize it was every aspect of my life. I am not where I am being called to be. So when I went to art school, which was really accidental, I mean, it was, I mean, I just, you know, I, I was in my, my boss's office in a financial services company I was working for. And she had a, a brochure for the School of the Museum of Fine Arts on her desk. And I was looking at it and I had been taking like French and, you know, needlepoint and directing. And, you know, like I say, in the, my one woman show is like the criteria for going to the class was they couldn't know or care about the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. Like I just needed to get as far away as I could from that. And I, and I just kind of wandered in, in the School of the Museum of Fine Arts and did not know, you know, I talked to the continuing education director and he was like, well, you ought to take this class called Artist Process because we take burnout executives in that class all the time. I'm like, <laughs> sign me up. And I walked into that art school and I'm like, oh, this is exactly where I fit because no one fits in here. We're, no one here is even trying to fit in. Everyone here is trying to have a unique voice and everyone here is asking questions and everyone here, it was just like, you can do this. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I had no idea that, you know, I just didn't know anything about the artist's life, nothing about it. And I just, every time I walked in the door, I was so happy. And I was also terrified because I knew I was walking further away from what I knew. It was really hard because I would, I was so happy to be there. And then I'd be like, okay, this just, it was like one thing was being born while the other thing was dying. I thought this is, you know, I'd go outside and go, shit. <laughs> I'd go outside and just, I just knew like I'm walking further and further away from everything I know. And I'm, but still, I just, I really, it was a huge internal call that I was on, that I needed to do this. And that, did you know, when you started to take all these classes, did you know, you, did, was it so conscious that you thought, I am miserable, I need to try something else? Or was it an unconscious? No, um, I was miserable. I was okay. miserable. Yeah. I mean, I was actively miserable, but I, <clears throat> I really thought it was just my job. And then one of the main things that art school or at least my experience in art school, I'm still very close to my instructors 30 years later, um, is that there were all these questions that kept getting at, that I was allowed to ask myself and why I was making certain decisions, what I was doing and really thinking about things and, and being around people who were completely different than me. And I was just like, oh, I truly, I am in the wrong life. I am not supposed to be married to this man I'm married to. Um, you know, I'm just supposed to be on a whole different path. And I didn't know what it was, but I did know I had to leave the United States to, um, to figure it out. Cause I had built a life that required a very high paying job. I no longer wanted. 
And, you know, Boston was expensive then. It's crazy now, but it was expensive enough then. And I didn't want to, I just knew I couldn't live there. I couldn't live in the United States and do what I wanted to do. I mean, I needed to be completely kind of. Um, and the museum school had, you know, this class in museum school in Ireland, and it was watercolor. And I can't stand a watercolor, but I wanted to go to Ireland. So I thought, let's me, let me do that. So I went over there for three weeks and came back and thought, I can't be here anymore. I can't be in the United States anymore. I can't be in this job anymore. I can't be in this life anymore. I can't do this anymore. And, and just to be clear, it wasn't like the marriage was like on a whim. I think I'll leave this guy. You know, I mean, we'd been in counseling for two years and tried everything there. I mean, he was a lovely man. We just had no business getting married. And um, so in some ways, I guess it was gradual, but in other way, I mean, when I finally made the decision in one week, I quit my job, sold my car, divorced my husband, closed wow. down my apartment. I mean, in I one, don't think just, I realized it all happened in a all week. All happened in one week. It all happened in one week. Like I came back from Ireland and I'm like, I, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And, and um, two months later, I was in Ireland and I literally, in one week, quit my job, sold my car, divorced my husband, cashed out all my retirement savings, got rid of my apartment. Wow. And I look you, back you and now and go, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But at the time it was just totally, this is what you're supposed to do. This is just completely what you're supposed to do. And so I did. You know, listening to the show, you really realize that there was a long gap between the time that you started to realize you were miserable and then the time after Ireland that you made all those decisions. And I found it to be a really interesting um, arc because you went to the career counselor and um, she gave you some, oh, she yeah. or he gave you some advice and you kind of ran the opposite direction. So she was the like, you're an artist opposite. and yeah. you ran the opposite direction. And then you started taking these classes and you were doing your final project and some of your art classes, and you were mm -hmm. still thinking about going back to business school. And then you find out your husband's cheating and you're not happy with him and you still want to stay in your marriage. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm wondering is um, why, what was it, was it about, was it going to Ireland? Was it being out of the space? I mean, what was it that there was this long time um, where you were feeling miserable, thinking through all these decisions and then there was this, you know, kind of snap where you were ready to make the cut, to cut yourself clean from everything all at once. Well, because I was, you know, when you, I removed myself from the situation, I got out of it and looked back at it is what happened. So, um, so having well, the space all, really of being yeah. in another environment, yeah. which in this case was a whole nother country, which, which was a whole nother country. I mean, you know, nobody gets married to say, geez, I hope I get divorced one day. I mean, that's just not what anybody ever wants to do. And so I, I didn't want that marriage to end because I didn't want the marriage to end. You know, that's, you know, and I also was like, and what the heck am I going to do if it does? And what is my lifespan? Because at the same time, all of my friends are having babies and I'm in the process of getting out of a marriage, you know? So it's, I mean, I'm like, I'm way behind or I'm doing things. I'm just, it's all, you know, it was just not, it was not on the linear path I was supposed to be on. And, um, and so, you know, I think we all, I mean, for the longest time, and I say this in the show, it's so funny. I'm just remembering what things that happened. 
you know, I literally was feeling a tap on my shoulder. I mean, it was a literal tap on the shoulder of like you, hello, hello, you need to be doing something different. Hello. You know, I just kept avoiding it and ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it. And I think we ignore that stuff at your peril. You know, I know I do. If I don't pay attention to that stuff, it's like, you're just going to make this so much harder on yourself. <laughs> like This is just going to be long and torturous. But I tried so long to hold on to life as it was because it was so scary for me to let go of it. I think and that was one of the moments. I mean, that was one of the moments of the show that was like a, it was when you went into the church and I think it was your first time back in church since you were a kid and your prayer was, I want to stay with what I know, even if oh, it's yeah. wretched. Yeah. Please, I was like, I, I don't, I just, I just want to stay here, even if it's wretched. Yeah. Just, just please don't make me do anything different, you know? And I, I do, I mean, you know, I, it's funny. I mean, my, you know, I, I went to church when I was a kid and was like, yeah, yeah, here we are. And, um, and it, my faith got born in the midst of all of this drama and, and I always, it's so funny because I'm, you know, my experience of God is, hey, I want you to do stuff completely different than anybody thinks you should do. That's my experience of God. My, my experience of God is like, we're not doing this the same way anybody else is doing it at all. So come with me. It's a lot more fun. Like, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, if we'd done things my way, I would be a raging alcoholic in Tampa, Florida, you know, and I mean, and, and God is like, I got a great imagination here. So if you just hook up with me, you're just going to have a much more fulfilling life. Now, I'm not going to promise you it's not going to be hard, but, you know, so, so that's, you know, that's my experience has always been, I'm going to ask you to go places that you're scared to go, but you're going to have everything you need once you get there. You know, you just got to trust me on this. And, um, and so that's kind of what I do. And, you know, I got led to Ireland and, and when I got to Ireland, you know, I, I found the right husband who I've now had for 22 years. And, um, and we met because he had been in the wrong life and left and went to Africa <laughs> and came back and where I'm like, wait, I know that I know what this is all about. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I figured out it took me a while, but I figured out that the riskiest thing I can do is play it safe. If I go the safe route, I am asking for trouble because it's just never safe, meaning a conventional path. It, it has never worked for me. It will not work for me. So you're thinking, you started to tell people you're going to Ireland and it sounded like um, a lot of friends started to caution you against it at that oh, time. God. Yeah. I'm curious to hear what they said. I mean, and how, when, cause there's one thing kind of deciding in your mind, okay, I'm going to do this. And then like letting the world know, and you start to get that pushback and kind of when that resistance starts to come, how did that, like, how did that feel? Well, you know what? I, I actually, you know, I was getting all of this pushback from people going, well, you know, Trisha, you know, like, and I remember one of my has my friend's husband saying, well, the fear is, and the fear is, and the fear, and like every sentence was started with, and the fear is, Trisha, and I thought, well, I'm not scared, so y'all don't need to be scared. You, I mean, you know, I know this makes absolutely no sense, but for somehow I'm like, I'm feeling as peaceful as I've ever felt in my life, so I can't, I can't explain it, but um, you know, I, I talked to this, uh, one of the priests at my church, and I was telling him that all these people were giving me pushback. And he said, Tricia, everyone will tell you the cost of going 
but no one will tell you the cost of staying. Wow. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm out of here. You know, I mean, I just, just so resonated with me and I just, I just knew there was a higher call saying, I get you're freaking everybody out, but you really need to go to Ireland. And I'm like, okay, I'm going, you know, um, you don't completely blow up your life unless a higher call is telling you to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like, I was like, I didn't do this on a whim. Had, you know, we'd been working up to this and believe me, there have been times when I've gone, really, we're doing this like, really, you know, and, um, tell me about, a another, another one of those times besides that, the one that you des- described in the show, you know, um, I mean, it was real, it was interesting to know, um, well, a couple of things. It was a big deal when we realized we were not going to have children because if you want to be different, don't have children in this world. And so that, that, was, that was a big conversation with, I'm talking about God a lot here, with God going, okay, so we're going to make me that different? We're going to be, we're going to, we're not only, okay, we're already doing the artist thing, right? <laughs> we're already doing the artist thing. And, and so now we're going to do the artist with no children. And, you know, I had always, I wasn't really that, I wasn't devastated. I wasn't going to be a mother because I could, you know, I could see us doing it both ways. I just didn't know what else I was supposed to do. Hmm. Like, I don't, huh. Then how do you contribute? Like, then what do you, what isn't, huh? I mean, I just, I didn't have, there was no role model for me. Everyone in my world, everyone had children. All of my friends had children. You know, it it was just, that's what you did. You had children. And, and so I was just confused because I'm like, could you help me out here? What, you know, what does this now look like? And I'm also in the woods in New Hampshire. So like, (laughs) like, you know, so it was like, it was very strange. It was a very strange, long time. And it's funny, I was working on this one woman, I was working on a solo art show and I was making these obsessive pencil drawings. Um, and they were based on, you know, red rose tea, you know, that red rose, tea, anyway, red rose tea. And, and they would, they would put, um, ceramic figurines in the in the box the collectible ceramic figurines and they would have series you know like the endangered species or circus animals or and this time they were doing noah's ark and so i am just collecting these no like the hen and the you know the hen and the rooster and the the you and the lamb i mean it was everybody was going to get on noah's ark right you know you had these pairs that were going in and so i'm obsessively collecting these things while I am working on visual, these obsessive pencil drawings that look like cells and it's called be fruitful and multiply that I, I'm not connecting the dots at all that I am, we're going through the process of trying to have children and I'm doing this work all about be fruitful and multiply. It is not, you know, like talk about compartmentalizing your life. And then we, you know, we realize it's not working, you know, you know, there's a whole big story here, but, um, which I will now tell you, because this is a big, a big piece, very ambivalent about having children. We're having our second round of, uh, uh, what you call it, um, intrauterine insemin- insemination or whatever. And I said, 
I had a prayer and I said, you know what, if, if I'm supposed to get pregnant, please make me be happy about it. And if I'm not supposed to get pregnant, block it because I don't want to bring some baby into this world because I think I'm supposed to. And then when it gets here, I realize I don't want one. Like, you know, babies are these beautiful clean slates and I don't want to mess some poor child up because I think I'm doing this because I'm supposed to. And, um, and I had been viewed as a candidate for everything, you know, all, you know, all my ovaries were great and every, you know, everything was fabulous. And my reproductive system after that prayer, my reproductive system completely shut down and I was a candidate for nothing. Just, it just shut down. And they were like, we can't, we can't help you out at all. And just right after the prayer. I mean, like in the week, like after the. Yeah. It was like the next thing I was supposed to go to the next round. They were like, we can't do this round because you haven't produced enough of anything and everything is shut down. And, you know, so that's a pretty big signal. (laughs) If you're looking for a sign, you know, that's a pretty big deal. So I went there, but this is what's interesting is I, I had, I had, um, collected all of these ceramic figurines, except for one, the male zebra, right? couldn't find the male zebra anywhere. And I had made a decision that I was just going to buy as many boxes as I possibly could have red rose tea and spent as long as I needed to, to find this male zebra. And I go into, um, the, this, uh, printing house here in town. I, I do a lot of sketches. I photocopy a lot of things there in my artwork. And I'm talking to the two women behind the counter and I'm, they were asking me about my work and I'm telling them what's going on. And, and it kind of hits me at that moment, you know, I'm working on this, this show called be fruitful multiply and because what happens when you realize you're not going to be fruitful multiply like all these other people and i have this existential moment in the middle of this printing press place and i'm going on and on and on and one of them you're telling them about i'm telling them everything like right here and you're like okay well we'll we'll just listen to her and um (laughs) and one of the women goes um hey i've had this figurine on my computer for nine months you want it and it was the male zebra. <laughs> what? You gotta I'm be like, kidding. No, I'm like, wait, so and, and you did you, you didn't mention it or anything. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Wow. And I'm like, okay, so apparently I, I'm not supposed to have children, but I do get a male zebra, <laughs> which allows me to finish the artwork that I'm trying to do here. I mean, so, I mean, the, so the signals my whole life have been, you need to go in this direction. And I, and I'm always going, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, I mean, I, sometimes it's an easier yes for me and other times it's kicking and screaming. So I grew up in a, like a very religious community. Um, and my, you know, the religious faith that my family is a part of believes that God is like a very hands-on God that, you know, like help you. I mean, this is a total exaggeration, but like help you pick your latte at Starbucks or something like that. Yeah. 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 And I, it's always been like a hard, a hard concept for me, even though I believed in God, but like that particular kind of God, but that story. And then the one where you prayed to God to let, um, to let you know whether or not your husband was having an affair. (laughs) I mean, between the two of those stories, it's, um, compelling evidence <laughs> well I had a friend of mine say Trisha you have like a burning bush god like, you know, like <laughs> yes that's how it seems listening because well you I pray to god to let you know whether or not your husband's having an affair and three days later three days later three, three days, days later and one of the best stories a I've woman, ever told yeah 
Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Well, it's I mean, it's great- just, well, it's just such great material. That's the other thing. It's like, but I did. You're absolutely right. I had been, you know, I, I had I think been- actually God has invested in your one woman show. I think he was like, I- I've, I'm going to get her this material. I'm going <laughs> to set it up. So I, met, I-, I read this article years ago and I saved it. And it was Cameron McIntosh, you know, who's this Broadway producer. And he was, he was telling a story of, I don't even remember what show it was, but how all of these things had, you know, gone wrong or whatever. And, and, and then, you know, they just knew that they would find a house, a a theater to put the show, show in. And and it it just, it all worked out. And he's like, you know, because in the end, God is the best producer of them all. And I was like, absolutely. It was hysterical the way he said it. But, you know, for me, yeah, I, it, and it was kind of crazy because I really knew that my husband was having an affair and he kept telling me that he wasn't having an affair. Now, just to be clear here, I was such a nightmare to be married to. I am surprised he didn't, he didn't put me in a wood chipper before he had an affair. I mean, I was not a oh good, my. yeah, I, I, I was, you know, I was, a, I was a handful. So, um, and um, so, I mean, I was so unhappy. I took a lot of it out on him, but, you know, that... Anyway, so his choice <laughs> was to go have an affair. And, um, and I, I guess it was, it was either happy. an affair or a wood chipper, is it what was, you're saying? Yeah, it was a wood chipper or an affair. So I guess I'm glad he went. He the, made the, the right choice. Route. I mean, yeah. if those are the only options. <laughs> those were. Uh, he just needed an escort out of the marriage, right? And so, um, and so, but he kept telling me he wasn't. We were going to these marriage counselors and they were saying, oh, Trisha, if he was having an affair, he would tell us, which is such crap. But anyway. So I'm just feeling crazy. I'm just feeling so out of my mind, crazy. And, you know, my father had an affair on my mother. So I'm like, are these old tapes? And, you know, I'm just uh, the whole thing. And so, uh, so I laid in bed and I said, you know what? And I had now moved across. I had now moved out of our home with, you know, we had a, you know, two-story colonial in the right suburb, blah, 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 you know, and I had moved into Boston and back Bay. And my family was traumatized because they were like, stay with the property, stay with the assets. And so all they can think of. And I'm like, I got to get very business minded. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so I, um, so I moved to this apartment in back Bay and I'm laying in the bed and I'm like, okay, God, um, I just need to know whether or not he's having an affair. And if he's having an affair, if he's not having an affair, help me trust him. And if he is having an affair, please let me know it. And literally three days later, I'm driving to the museum school and, um, and I see his car on the side of the road. It's this little white Alfa Romeo. You cannot miss it, as I always say. And there's this woman putting something in his car. And I'm like, the, literally the first thing I did was throw my hands up the air and say, thank you, God, I'm not crazy. I mean, it was the, my first reaction was not like, <laughs> oh, oh no, it was just like, I'm not crazy. This is so great. Like I got my whole gut back. My whole sense of self came. It was like, I can trust myself, you know, it really made a huge difference. And, um, anyway, so eventually my husband rounds the corner with an overnight bag and I'm like, <laughs> maybe, maybe we should have a conversation. <laughs> Um, and, but still, I mean, I was really like, God was saying, you know, okay, you have been denying this for a year. I need to make sure that you actually have the evidence you need to know that this is what's going on. So I'm going to have you move across the street from the woman he's having an affair with. Um, but still he convinced me that it was a spiritual affair and not a physical one. So I held on to that for a couple more months. 
until finally I said, okay. I mean, I mean, I, I, I will hold on to things as long as I can until finally it's like, would you just let go? This is what the truth is. I think that's so, it sticks out to me a lot because I was just talking to my sister-in-law and she's going through a divorce right now. One of the things she keeps talking about is there's a lot of gaslighting from her husband in the divorce, it's emotional abuse, and then gaslighting about the emotional yeah. abuse. Yeah. And one of the things she just kept saying is, it just feels like I'm crazy. It feels like I'm crazy. Like yeah. I'm making everything up. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's just interesting to hear that really the breakthrough for you in that moment, like the biggest relief came from knowing you weren't crazy. Oh my God. It was like, it was such a gift. It was such a gift to go. I'm not crazy. I can handle anything else after this. I am not crazy. And I think, you know, I think for all of us, it's being in denial about anything. It's, I mean, I think, I think denial can be a useful coping skill a lot of us have to do it when we're growing up. You know, we have a set of skills when we're growing up and then they don't serve us anymore. And it's very hard to say to yourself, this relationship is not what I wanted it to be. This, this life is not what I wanted it to be. This, you know, I'm not who I want it to be, you know, and I just had to learn a lot of unpleasant things about myself all at one time and also learn that I was some, some really wonderful things about myself at one time or, or meet this person who I had always wanted to be, but had never been allowed to be or let myself be, or, you know, she kind of snuck out every now and then, but, you know. I mean, like I went to Vanderbilt University and I was in a sorority, this, you know, my brother had gone to Vanderbilt first. So I went right after him and I was kind of like, um, just supposed to be the female version of how his experience at Vanderbilt. And, you know, my parents had been divorced. So I was like, just get me out of here. So I just, I just applied to Vanderbilt and got in. And when I got, I just, there was two, there was the sorority I was in, which was wonderful friends, everything. But there was also this club called the Original Cast, and they sang Broadway musicals. And I wanted to be in that. I just wanted to be in that group. And I just would have never, ever allowed so you myself. Didn't oh, apply, no. didn't no, no, or no, um, no, audition. No, wow. I just looked longingly at it. And then when I was in New York and I was working at a public relations firm because I was told I was supposed to go into public relations. So I went into public relations. I did not make my first decision for myself until I was 30 FYI. But, um, but anyway, so I was on the phone. I was pitching a client to a marketing director at um, Z100, this gigantic radio station in, in New York, which I guess is still there. I have no idea. And at the time it was the largest station in the tri-state area. And I'm on the phone with a marketing director and he's like, you have the most amazing voice for radio. Come down here and I will do a free demo for you. Wow. And, I, and I'm like, oh no, thank you. No. And oh, I just said, no. You turned I it said, down. Oh, gotcha. I turned it because I'm, I know that, no, I'm supposed to be in public relations. You must have me confused with someone else. And so I was just the most rigid thinker about this is what it's supposed to look like. And so when I went to art school, that rigidity just, it just blew up. You know, I mean, fortunately, 
fortunately, but even still, I mean, I think, you know, when I was rehearsing for my one woman show, I got a new director after five years and she was directing me in a different way. And I had done the show in a particular way for five years and she was asking me to do it differently. And when I finally figured out what she wanted me to do, I was sobbing as I was doing it differently because I could literally feel my hmm. brain think it was like wagon wheels that had been in a rut for a really long time trying to get out of it. I mean, it was a physical sensation and an emotional sense of literally trying to do this show differently. It was trying to just push it. And I mean, I, and I, for me, it's just a metaphor of normally what I do to myself when I try to make any change, you know, but um, that was a big, and the other thing I used to do because I was told never to raise, you know, draw attention to myself. And here I was doing this one woman show. <laughs> yeah. Oops. And, <laughs> I know. And so I, I, I would be in the green room and I would say, um, you're just a bad, bad person to do this. You're a bad person. Wow. So this is before you're going out. Uh-huh. You're saying and, um, your self-talk before you go out. Is... Oh, it's like, you should not be doing this. You're a bad person. Really? You're a bad person to do this. And then I go out and do the show and I come back and go, you're a bad person for doing this. <sighs> and, um, and then one time. Did you tell someone? I mean, was it um, so clear to you that you would articulate that to people that you felt that way? No. Or was it kind of stuck back there? Yeah. No, it was just stuck in my head. And then, um, and then, um, one time I was backstage, I was like, well, wait a second. Maybe actually the greatest gift I can do, like give my art instructors and other people who want to be artists and maybe other is like to actually tell this story. Maybe the biggest gift I can give God is to do this story. Maybe, you know, and so there was a, suddenly a reframe happened. And so, and then, the, and then I was, um, the moth had asked me to come down to Somerville, Massachusetts. I can't remember what the name of the theater is. I'm blanking. To tell the 13 minute version of how to draw a naked man. And I was still on that. Oh, you know, I'm, it was still tough. And a friend of mine had just said, I was supposed to go to her We'd been very dear friends. She was having a 50th birthday party. It was a very small, intimate party, and she didn't invite me. And I was just floored. I didn't understand why I wasn't invited. And she said, well, it's usually, Trisha, it's just the four of us or five of us that get together every birthday. And plus, you have that big personality. Hmm. And I, you know, in my whole life, you know, the big personality has been the liability. Well, you know, you have that, you know, and I was always told to just tamp it down, damp it down, you know, whatever. So I'm going to the, the, I'm at the moth and, um, and I'm still sort of reeling from the big personality comment that'd been like a month before. Then I'm feeling still not great that I'm getting on stage and doing this. And the director came up to me and said, Hey, Trisha, I have a big um, request for you tonight. Um, we'd really like for you to open the show. We know that's a big ask, but you have that big personality. And so we know you wow. can pull it off. <laughs> Did she use the phrase? She big the word. Oh, you my have goodness. that big personality and oh, we know goodness. you can pull it off. I went, I have found my people. Oh. And I just ever never looked back after that. Oh man. But literally the words out of her mouth was you have that big personality. 
That is wild within four weeks of each other to be, I mean, just to have your lowest moment and your highest moment about the same trait. And I I feel like for me, there's the way that society judges us. And then there's the way, well, at least, you know, with, with my faith, I feel like God is, I don't like to choose the word judging me, but that there's a criteria there. Like, you know, I can either do it how the world wants me to do it, or I can do it what feels right in my soul and my heart and where my marching orders are coming from. And, and sometimes it lines up and sometimes it's a big disconnect and I have to just go with the one that makes me sleep at night, you know? And I will say, man, I get along with my family a lot better now that I'm actually who I am way better. And it's just easier. So my wife and I, um, we, we weren't those people who knew that they were gay when they were young. We figured it out um, when we came close to each other. And so when we came out, we came out together to people and it was in a conservative uh, Midwestern town. And so some of our relationships have reached that smooth mm-hmm. that area, but some are still very bumpy. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear, was it time that smoothed the relationships out? Was it having conversations where you um, specifically shared the tensions between you? Was it a conversation where you finally said, look, I'm living my life, you're living your life. We need to agree to disagree. What moved it from bumpy to smooth? I think it was time. It was giving everybody space. I think I had to be a lot less judgmental of them because, you know, I was make I was thinking, well, they should just, and they should, just, and they should, and they, and you know, they don't need to do anything. They can be exactly who they are. You know, I mean, so, I mean, I, I had to sort of change my, um, I, you know, there was, if I think about it, there was a, a certain degree of self-righteousness on my part of like, I'm doing things differently than you and whatever. And, you know, so we all just mellow, you know, I mean, you just mellow. I mean, even with my friends, it was like, you know, for the longest time, we just had nothing to talk about except history because they were raising kids, you know, and I'm like all excited about rust. You know, you can't, we just had such different interests, you know, and um, I think things circle back, you know, and I think, I think everybody, you know, you just have to respect everybody and you know, if I want them to respect me, I got to, res- I got to respect the choices they're making, man. I mean, they don't have to, they don't have to think like me, but we do all, we do, the hope is everybody respect each other, you know, and, and so that, you know, so, I mean, I think the change happened because I just, I changed me first, you know, I, I was just less, um, less, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying before the interview started. It's like, I was just so afraid of being abandoned and so it was, there was a lot of fear in my relationships with them, you know, because I was just afraid, afraid they were going to go and afraid, uh, just afraid. And then it got to a point where that the worst person, you know, the worst thing could happen is if I abandoned myself. And so I was just like, here's, I love you. Um, I mean, I didn't say this, but in my mind, it was like, you know, okay, just take care of you and love them. And don't expect them to agree with everything you do. You don't agree with everything they do. Why? You know, I mean, just, just, just love them. You that know? is so interesting because 
that was the biggest breakthrough that Carmen and I have had. Um, so we'd been together, we'd come out, we've been together four years and still things we just felt, I mean, like shit and in all these relationships. And then there was this one January in 2019 where we wrote out this series of sentences, which was, I accept that my parents might not ever think of my marriage as the same as my siblings, that they might not ex ever accept my sexuality, that sort of thing. Yeah. And here we had thought for years that what would bring us peace is that they would accept us. And then we spent all this time working to accept that they were like where they are. And that was it. That was yeah, like the yeah. big breakthrough. And really that was like the first time we felt like really true deep peace in like four years was coming to accept who they were and where they were. And then we could like start to build up relationships from there. Yeah. I mean, it, it always, you know, you got to keep your side of the street clean first, you know, and, and I just, you know, I just, I just have, it's life is just for me learning a series of unpleasant things about myself and going, <laughs> I have to fix that. <laughs> That's not attractive. Let's fix that. You know, and for the longest time going, well, it's them. Well, no, actually it might be some work that you can do. And it's not, you know, it's not a magic bullet, but it can go a long way if you just, you know, kinder to yourself and kinder to other people and just, and just let people be where they are. You know, I just, can you give me a specific example of uh, something you tried to change about yourself that you, that led to a better relationship with them? Um, I mean, I think it's about expectations. So I've been a member of Al-Anon for years, which I, I, my personal opinion is that everyone should go to art school and a 12-step program and life would be a better place. That's what I just think. But anyway, and there's this great um, uh, thing that we say, which is stop going to that hardware store for a loaf of bread. <laughs> so <Okay>. like... <laughs> which was just the most magical words I'd ever heard. Like, why am I expecting family or friends to say, yay, Trisha, about areas they don't even know what I'm doing. Like, I'm not even telling them about what I'm doing. So why are they getting excited about what I'm doing? Because I'm not even telling them what it is in the first place. And, you know, it's like, do they have to be yaying all of my artistic stuff? No, they just have to love me. And that's, you know, I mean, I'll fill them in, but you know, I mean, I, you know, I had, I just, it was like, I kept expecting them to be so interested in everything I was doing. I'm like, I'm not interested in everything they're doing. So why do I, I mean, so it was kind of that it was just like, just letting it just, just managing my expectations a lot, you know, of not, if I want to tell them something's going on now, now I'll say, Hey, you know, I'm going to be on the moth radio hour and tune in if you want to. And if they tune in great. And if they don't, I don't care. You know I mean? I used to be so wounded, you know, yeah. it's like, they're just, what? Just quit taking everything so personally. It probably doesn't all have to do with you. You know, it's hard to feel like it doesn't have to do with you. You know, when People aren't showing up for something that's important to you, even though it's just not their cup of tea. It's still, it's pretty hard to walk that line. But you know what though? I've got a couple of years on you and after a while, it's okay. I mean, you know what I mean? You just, it's really okay. 
Uh, I mean, I think, you know, right now I want my energy to go into my work. I want my energy to go into helping other people who have, you know, are on the fence about being an artist or, or being an entrepreneur that's going to take a scary step. You know, I mean, my job is just to, to, is just to, um, tell my story and help other people tell their stories. I mean, I get so excited when I help people tell their stories. It's such a thrill. I mean, that's just my job. You know, I had a good friend of mine, um, you know, my niece whom I adore, um, got pregnant with the first grandchild. And I was, it just like one more time, oh God, you know, my life mm. is so different. And this is not, you know, yeah. so first you don't have children, then, oh, now you don't have grandchildren. And so, you know, just to make sure it's a very strange thing. And I was sort of just kind of got hit hard by that. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's, a, she's been a performer all her life. And she said, Trisha, instead of trying to give three children their voice, you're giving lots mm. of people their voice. That's mm. what your job is. You know, and so sometimes you get acceptance from family members who you are not related to, <laughs> you know, I mean, I have my non-DNA family and they're, you know, there's a circle of artists who are going to give me the, they know what it's, they know what it's like to be an artist. We are not really the general population, right? You know, not everybody knows how it works and, you know, even, even if my family wanted to, they don't know. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of being a real estate developer. I can't possibly understand all that stuff. You know, I can't expect them to know the ins and outs of being an artist, but another artist does. And that's where I go to. And I'm like, I, how do I, what do I, you know, so you just develop these other related, we all, we can't be everything to everybody, you mm -hmm. know? I was really touched by, so someone's grandma who sent them your show, right? Your video. Yeah. And I then know. I'd love for you, I don't have it jotted down here, but tell me again what uh what she said. I love well, it. Well, and here here's another one of those burning bush moments. I've been working on a memoir for a long time, which did not get picked up yet, I like to say. But um, I was supposed to have a meeting that day um with a with someone who was gonna help me with a memoir and it didn't happen. And I was very, I was just so distraught by the whole thing. And there, I'd had this very bumpy, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, about doing this memoir. And I was in a, um, I was in a, I was like in a low spot and I'm walking around the block. I'm like, okay, God, you know what? If you want me to still be working on this memoir, you got to give me some kind of sign because I don't feel like it's going anywhere. Here we I'm go. Exhausted. It's burning bush, Trisha. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know what, but this is, this is not working for me and I'm exhausted. And I don't even know if I'm supposed to be telling the story anymore. And I go back home and like an hour later, I get this email from this woman totally out of the blue. I mean, completely out of the blue. Never she heard from her, right? Never heard, never heard of her in my life. She's now, we now follow each other on Facebook, on uh, Instagram. But, um, and she said, um, she's from Australia. And she said, um, hi, I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to tell you how much I loved listening to your show. When my Nana sent it to me, I'm like, okay, now we have a grandmother involved. This is crazy. When my Nana sent it to me like six years ago, I almost didn't open it, but now I listen to it every three or four months and I cry every time. I just wanted you to know that I left my horrible job in the government and I'm now a birth photographer. No need to get back with me. Thanks so much. Oh man. <laughs> it's like just, weeping. as your friend said, that <laughs> instead of having three children, 
you are helping all these people and, and develop their stories. It just, it just undid me. My husband was like, okay, I don't want to hear any more about it. Just Trisha, just, just read the, the email over and over again, whatever you just get. Like, <laughs> why am I doing? Just keep reading the email. But, you know, and as it turns out, you know, the, the memoir didn't get picked up. And then I'm like, really? But now all that content I created for the memoir is going to go into my own podcast because I have all this stuff done. So, and um, the whole marketing plan that was for the memoir is just going to be the marketing plan for the podcast. I mean, you, you know, nothing is ever wasted, but um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a funny journey. It's a funny journey. Let's talk about the podcast. Tell me, oh, uh, yeah. yeah, tell me about your vision for the podcast. Well, I really, um, for years I've been saying, well, you know, there's no time to be timid. I mean, I say that all the time because I'm really far out there on a skinny branches at this point. Like I have just got, like, it's not a limb, just little tiny branches <laughs> that we're just going. And so kind of when you're doing that, like you just can't do it halfway. I mean, you're, you're there, do it, you know? And, um, I mean, I've just risked too much to be a wimp at this point, you know, you just kind of just got to do it. So, um, did you pick up that mantra from somewhere specific? No, it was just in my head. It was just in my head. And then tell me about, um, I want to hear about the podcast, but first I'd love to hear. So you have this mantra, because I know you wrote about it on your blog and tell me about like a moment that you were vacillating about a decision or something. And then you were like, you know what, Trisha, there's no time to be timid. Is there a moment like that for you? Uh, every day when I wake up and I okay. try to go out to the studio. <laughs> Not <laughs> a longest, moment, but all yeah. the moments. <laughs> like, okay. like the longest walk I take is from my house to the studio. It's only 50 feet. It's like, you know, get out there, and go make some stuff. So um, I think, I mean, it just courage, just, God, it's just so important. It's so important. You know, it, it takes courage to be loving to somebody you don't want to be loving to. It takes courage to I mean, I think of people like single moms, good Lord. I mean, I, you know, just, I mean, the courage I have to muster is easy compared to what some courage, some people have to muster, but, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I've just said it for years, no time to be timid. And then I was at a, 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 um, friends of mine have a home on Nantucket and there's a, an ad about some, it was in a jewelry store and it was a quote from somebody a million years ago. And that said, alas, there was no time to be timid. And I took a picture of it. I was like, yes, you know, so <laughs> I carried it around on my phone. And I think now, particularly with everything that's happening in the world, you know, we just no time to be timid. Like if you want to go out and make work, make work. Cause we need more voices out there in the world. We need more beauty out in the world. We need more, you know, we just need more uh, vulnerability in the world. Um, it's a friend of mine who says he has two people, there are two kinds of people he likes in his life, people who are venerable and people who make things. I'm mm-hmm. like, that's pretty much that sums up the people in my life. So, you know, if I can help people at all, and you know, what I'm going to do is I'll start each uh, episode with a, a story. Cause you know, I'm good at that. I'll tell some, you know, uh, start out with a story and, um, and then interview people who have taken significant risk. Um, some of them, you know, are known, some of them are working for institutions that are known, you know, but just kind of what it took them similar, what you're doing to me. Um, but what it took them to, you know, to make those choices and, and, um, and really, because I, I look at everything from story, from a story standpoint, one of the key elements of a story is what's at stake. If there's no stakes 
you know, there's no story. What can be won? What can be lost? Right. So I want to know what's at stake for them if they hadn't made that decision. Hmm. What what would have happened in their life if they hadn't made that? Yeah, you know, I, I said it tonight. If if you know if I hadn't made those choices, I'd be a raging alcoholic in Tampa, Florida, right? You know, I mean, I uh, it just it, you know I I would have either shopped myself to death or drank myself to death or sexed myself to death or something. That creative energy has to go somewhere, and you want it to go a positive place. Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm, I'm hoping just to help people have a little courage rub off on them. I can't wait to listen. It's coming out. Well, uh, you're hoping for a June release, right? Well, yeah. Well, because the moth is running one of my stories. As it turns out, the story about how I moved across the street from my husband's girlfriend. Oh, awesome. Um, well, and here's the thing that's so funny. I told that story on the moth stage in 2013. 2013. And they call, I mean, it's nine years later. They said, hey, Trisha, we want to put this in the radio hour. I'm like, have at it. <laughs> so I'm going to... Um, I, you know, I was so surprised. And so they're going to, um, I'm going to launch my podcast at that time. Cause it's a great exposure opportunity. Cause right. they, they, you know, they have a little bio a, a vast, a vast following. And then at the end of the story, they'll say, you know, Trisha Bird is blah, 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 blah. And they're, and they are now going to say, and as the host of the popular new podcast, no time to be timid. So indeed there will be <laughs> a <laughs> so popular you podcast, a deadline, at least a podcast by that point. Yeah, I do. Yes. I do. I do. Yeah. We're rounding the corner here on our, um, on our time frame. So thank you so much, Trisha. It's just, oh been, gosh, I'm so excited to be here. This is a fabulous podcast. Best of luck. It's just, the title is so fantastic. I'm like, <laughs> how many ways can I say that? <laughs> yes. Um, well, anyway. I really, it feels, I was saying to Carmen, um, you know, today I felt like a little, I couldn't quite identify what the feeling was. And then I figured it out, which is that it was the same feeling I had, um, having people on a new podcast that I haven't quite figured everything out on was the same feeling. I had when we had people to our tiny house and we were still under construction and like when they would come to, you know, hang out, they'd have to like poop in a bucket and there was nowhere to wash their hands. <laughs> and we had to eat like cold little Caesars pizza. And I was like, you know, Trisha's a good guest for the rustic cabin experience of my podcast. It's yeah. not going to be the luxury cruise that maybe later guests <laughs> will have, but like, I appreciate your, um, your courage and generosity to, oh, to come for I the just, rustic cabin yeah. experience. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And I mean, I will tell you this, so many hands have helped me to get where I am. I mean, so many people have helped me to get where I am and nobody does this on their own. Nobody does anything on their own. And I'm just, you know, for every burning bush I've had, I've also had just so many people step in and, and help me. And so any, any way I can help anybody else, it's just it's, feels good to do it. So thank you. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you.